I'm Jacob Efron, an investor at Redpoint, and this is Vital Science, a podcast on cutting-edge trends in health tech and the people shaping them. I'm really excited today to have Seema Verma on the podcast. Seema has a really interesting background, founded and ran her own health policy consulting firm, SVC, where she worked on Medicaid and health exchanges with a variety of state agencies. And then she served as the administrator of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, basically running Medicare and Medicaid, where she worked on a really interesting set of areas like price transparency, at-home and value-based models, and really pioneered a lot of the changes CMS made during the pandemic. She now serves on the board of a variety of interesting health tech companies like Lumeris, LifeStance, Monogram, and WellSky. Seema, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Well, I guess to, you know, to kick things off, I'd love to start with just a bit of background on you and how you kind of made your way into the, the healthcare world and CMS. Oh, that's always a good question. You know, I started out like uh, many kids thinking that I wanted to go to medical school. And on the side, I was involved with student government. And so really kind of got a, an introduction to government and policy. And I recognized early on that a lot of what goes on in healthcare is really outside of the doctor's office and that there's more issues and topics at play that that make a difference in people's lives. So kind of did a detour and instead finished up and doing a degree in health policy and management in public health. So yeah. That story feels very common in our industry of folks, you know, starting out on the pre-med side, maybe getting exposed to an internship or job or experience that got them excited on the policy side. Was there like a moment or experience for you that kind of crystallized that that's where you wanted to spend, you know, a lot of your time? You know, the, the neat thing about healthcare, what I really love about it is that it's never boring. There's always <laughs> so much to learn. There is not a single day that I am not learning about healthcare. And I started my career very early working on HIV and AIDS policy. And it's kind of interesting. It seems sort of niche, but it's actually, it was a great microcosm of some of the bigger issues in healthcare. You know, that's where I learned about the social determinants of health, right? That's kind of a hot topic now, but, you know, many, many years ago, some of those issues were still at the forefront. So started out there, worked on maternal and child health, um, big issue now with maternal mortality, same issues that we're still struggling with so many years later. But really every place that I've been able to focus on and work, it's like there's a whole set of issues, a whole set of topics. And it's like the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, I, I'm kind of intellectually curious and I love learning and I feel like healthcare constantly gives you that. Yeah. Kind of switching over to the policy side, I'd be curious, you know, obviously you, you did a ton while you were at CMS. And I think reflecting back on that experience, curious kind of what you're proudest of that you did there. Yeah. That's always uh, asking me to pick my, my favorite child. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think our time at CMS was very unique if I look at it and compare it to some of the other administrations. Most administrations have a major piece of policy that they are implementing whether it was Part D for the Bush administration, for the Obama administration, it was obviously the Affordable Care Act. Now the Biden team is, is going to be implementing some of the drug pricing. And for us, because we tried that and it didn't work, we really had the opportunity to look across the entire healthcare system and say, what's working, what's not working, and take a stab at addressing a whole host of issues. And from my perspective, it was hard to be there. Uh, my family was in Indianapolis, so I'm commuting back and forth. And I kept telling the team, look, we don't want to get distracted. When we leave, we want to be able to say, these are the things that we got done. These are the things that we accomplished. And so there was a ton of stuff that we got done in you know that whole time that we were there. 
some of the things that uh, every time I every time I go through this exercise and people ask me, then somebody will say, well, what about this one? You forgot this one. You <laughs> forgot that one. You know, some of the things I think that are going to have a major impact that are already having that impact are some of the regulations that we did around interoperability. Typically, the Office of the National Coordinator has that responsibility, and they were implementing a lot of the changes in the Cures Act. What people don't realize is that CMS really didn't have a directive. We had no role in the Cures Act, but we went through looking at our authority and pushed through a lot of areas around interoperability. So now when you get on a a patient portal and you get your electronic health record and you can see what happened, that's a lot of the work that we did. And I think it ended up being a hammer to a lot of the work that ONC was doing. So I think that's going to have a tremendous impact. I don't think people are really, we're fully realizing it. It's going to take a few years, but I think that's going to have a big impact. Surprise billing, price transparency. There's a lot of discussion about drug pricing and insulin. I don't think people realize that we did $35 insulin three years ago. And I think that actually became the basis for a lot of the changes that you, that, that actually got done with Congress. You know, we did work on what we called patients over paperwork, which was reducing regulatory burden rural health. We pay the primary care doctors more. So there was a multitude of issues and I'm sure I'm forgetting some of the big ones, but um, I think those are the ones that kind of stand out in my mind. No, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting set of, of, of things. And I think, you know, a lot, a lot to dig into there. I mean, I think maybe just starting with, with the first one you mentioned on the interoperability side, mm-hmm. I'm curious kind of, you know, where you think we are today in terms of, uh, of, of the vision that you, you know, that you and the team had and, and kind of um, implementing that. And, you know, yeah, maybe I'll start there. Yeah, well, we're not there yet. You know, I think it's great that as patients, we have some better access to our medical records. I don't know about you, but now I have like four patient portals on yep. my phone and I forgot <laughs> the password, so I can't get into this one and that glad, one. Glad I'm not the only one. So, <laughs> right. So it's it's actually a little bit more chaotic and it's not exactly what we'd envisioned. Our vision was that you would be able to have your entire healthcare record on your phone and you would be able to share it with whoever you wanted to. What feels like the big barrier to, to that? You know, it's it's surprising to me because I think on the payer side, you know, the, the mandate has been you have to give claims data. So some of that, there were some delays because of COVID and the administration. We did, and I think the Biden team as well, wanted to give people a little bit more time given that. But those things are all going to now come into effect. They're starting to come into effect. I hope that people are leveraging those things. It's not just, okay, you put the claims data out there. But who's going to be that innovator that pulls all of the data together, all the claims data, all the medical record data? I still think that there's a lot of territorial issues. You know, people make money off of the data that they have. And if we make it easy for patients to have it and we start unleashing it, then, you know, your revenue model may go away. So I think there's a little bit of that going on. And I think there's privacy issues. I don't think that we have, we didn't have the authority to do it. but as a patient, you can say, I want my data and here's my password. But what, what is more difficult is if it's a, your health plan or your doctor's office requesting that data, there's really no rules in place that say, yes, you have to share it with them. And you know what those, how, how do we make sure that it is you asking for that data that you have given that permission? I think all of that's still pretty ambiguous and that hasn't really taken hold. So we have a long way to go. I was really encouraged uh, when I saw the presentation by um, Oracle Cerner uh, that they just bought 
Cerner and some of the vision that they laid out. I think that was consistent with where we want to go. I will also say that I think that this is one of the most important parts of our healthcare system and has the potential for great innovation if we can if we can pull this off. And it's not clear, not entirely clear to me where the barriers are, whether is this all an industry thing or there's still more regulations that need to happen. And I think at this point, we're probably letting these new regulations play out. And my guess is they'll probably need to be another round. Yeah, no, that, that's super interesting, kind of the idea that both there'll need to be some, you know, regulatory clarity around, you know, when and how this information gets shared when it's not, you know, directly the, the patient requesting. And then also, you know, some, it sounds like, way to work with folks who may benefit in the current system and, and kind of incentivize them to right. or, or provide more of a hammer for them to share some of this data. That makes that makes a ton of sense. And then, you know, I think similarly, another area that you kind of got folks to cooperate on in, in a pretty interesting way is, is on the price transparency side. I mean, I feel like for a while people have been talking about that, but there's obviously uh, interest to not share some of that data. And it feels I've been really impressed, actually, of, of how much of that data is. I think folks were always wondering how much, you know, how much data would actually be shared. But at least from the outside, it seems like there's been a fair amount uh, that's been shared on both the payer and system side. I mean, I'd be curious, again, with on the price transparency side. Where are we kind of today in, in, in uh, kind of the vision you had when you were writing and implementing some of this policy? Well, you know, we had a lot of internal decisions to make. And the idea was we're going to go big on this. And we were very lucky that the court supported us. So this was about as far as we could go in terms of the amount of information that we wanted to have out there. Again, still coming in, right? You have a lot of health systems that um, most of them have cooperated. I know there's a, the media likes to say that they're not cooperating, but they are. And I think that's going to continue to evolve and develop. And my guess is the administration at some point is going to be going after those players that are not. And I think on the insurer side, they had just you know recently had to comply with the requirement to post all of their negotiated prices. That being said, the patient pieces don't really come into play until January of next year. And I think that's going to be really exciting. I think that's when we're all going to feel it. I mean, the reality is most of us now are not going to go onto some website and go through complicated spreadsheets to try to figure out the price. But going forward, we're going to have that right at our fingertips where we can say, I need this procedure and your plan's going to be required to give you that information based on you know your own specific plans. I think that's very exciting. And then I'm, I'm hopeful that the industry and the innovators out there are taking that data. Some great companies out there, Turquoise, for example, they looked at the regulations, they see all the data that's out there, and they're trying to build a business model around all of this new information. So I'm excited about the folks that are out there that are trying to figure out how can this data be useful. I think it's going to be interesting in terms of negotiations. But the data is very complex. There's a lot of it. So it's not that easy. You have so much of it, but somebody's got to translate it for you. And so there, again, you know, there's still work to be done, but I think we've laid a foundation for price transparency and what's going to come of that. And I think what's going to come for that is hopefully a new era of consumerism for patients. And I think it's going to strengthen negotiations, whether it's payers or providers or employers. So excited to see where that's going to take us. Totally. I mean, one thing I've heard you talk about before is kind of this idea of, you know, the government setting policies and laying some of the the groundwork and then, you know, companies and the private sector kind of building businesses around that. I think the turquoise example is, is a really good one of taking this kind of price transparency data that's now available, but making that, you know, actually consumable and actionable at the end. Across all the many policies that you both implemented or were part of, 
are there any that you're like, oh, I really wish there were more private sector companies focused on, you know, building in this space or, or areas that you think are pretty ripe based on some of the policy changes right. or a bit more in the startup community? Right. You know, it's kind of interesting about how you think about the role of government. You know, I think some people go in and they have the idea that government should be doing everything, right? We should, even now in these conversations about price transparency, somebody, you know, I keep hearing people say, well, let's have the government now aggregate all of these websites so that there's one place to go. And I always just kind of cringe at that. You know, to me, it's, no, we don't, we want the government to do as little as possible. We want the government to really reduce its role and only do what the government can do. And the government can is, is the one to be the regulator, to require certain things, to create that competition. But to me, it's always more exciting when you have companies that take advantage of that. So that's what Turquoise is doing. I, you know, I think it's going to be interesting looking at some of the changes in the drug law or in drug policy around Part D reforms. And again, I think Part D has been an extraordinary program. And hats off to the creators of that. They did a fantastic job with that. But, you know, they've actually held premiums pretty low for many, many years. And now they're going to have an opportunity to have better negotiations with the redesign around some of the more expensive drugs. So it'll be exciting to see how that happens. But I think those are examples. When the government gets it right, they're not doing things. They're creating a market so that innovators in the private industry can compete to bring better quality and lower prices. It makes sense. I mean, you kind of mentioned the the recent kind of drug pricing legislation. So I'm curious. I mean, obviously, you know, I think there's a lot of things in there, you know, around negotiating prices, the out-of-pocket limits, you know, limiting price increases from drug companies, the insulin caps. Curious kind of your your reaction to that legislation. Yeah, I mean, I, I well, we start with the good, which is I think that the Part D redesign was something that's been talked about for a long time, and it had support from both sides. And if you look at the bill that Senator Grassley was trying to advance some some very similar things there. And I think in the beginning when Part D was originally formed, you know, there was a lot of questions. So we had the government taking more responsibility for those, that catastrophic phase. And I think that's actually contributed to some of the higher prices that we've had. So redesigning that to put more on the private health plans, I think that's a win. It's a win for patients to limit the out-of-pocket spends. I think that part was really good. I think it's important to say it is not a negotiation, right? I mean, it's a, it's a nice tagline, but the reality is it's government price setting. And so now we're going into an era where we used to say, you know, we've got Part D plans. We're just having the government come in and set your price for certain classes of drugs And so if we look at Medicare's historical role in price setting, I mean, where are we as a country? How has price setting worked? Well, you know, if we look at the the growth in healthcare costs, it's always grown more than the GDP. So I'm not a big fan of government price setting only because we only have history to tell us that it hasn't actually worked well. And I think that the manufacturers, there's going to be all kinds of, you know, ways that they're going to figure out how to maneuver in the short term, it'll really save us some money. In the long term, what I fear is that it's going to actually increase launch prices because the way to sort of deal with this is if your launch price is really high, you're not worried about the inflationary rebates. So I think there's some problems there. I think that it hasn't been as much in the media about the impact that it's going to have on physicians. And I think that's going to be a significant impact, especially the providers that do a lot of Part B prescribing and um, physician-administered drugs. And I think we need to be looking at that because physician reimbursement, there's also a lot of problems with that right now. And then you couple this on top of it. 
I was disappointed that they didn't address uh, Part B and how physicians are reimbursed. I think that was a big miss. And I think overall, I would say it's almost like they've put a Band-Aid on it or they're treating symptoms, but they actually haven't gotten to some of the underlying problems that are driving prices up. I think some of the, the PBMs, you know, I think there's two ways to look at it. In some ways, they've done a great job in keeping the premiums low. On the other hand, they are doing very well. Their margins are really high relative to the other parts of the industry. And I think there are some reforms there. I mean, you can have biologics that come to market, but you know what? They can't make it on the formulary. So I'm not sure that we've solved problems. We've put Band-Aids on problems. We haven't gotten to some of the underlying issues and I'm very worried about, like I said, launch prices. I'm worried about innovation. I'm worried about, you know, small molecule drugs. So we'll see what happens. And like anything else in government policy, it'll it'll get continued to be tweaked along the way. That's super interesting. I mean, I guess if, if you had a magic wand and could have gotten any bill through Congress, like what, what are some of the things you might have done, you know, on the Part B side or some of the other areas that you, you kind of mentioned? Right. I think the Part B was something that that needed the way we reimburse physicians to me is just flawed. You know, we basically say it's ASP plus six percent with the sequester. It's been a little bit a little bit lower. And so, you know, there's a whether doctors are doing this or not. I mean, there is a inherent incentive there to have a higher price because doctors are going to get paid more. And so we can figure out a different way to do it. it doesn't mean that we need to cut reimbursement to providers, which I think is going to happen under this bill. But I think that some of the proposals that we were looking at that we never launched were around, let's just play a flat rate to physicians. And I don't want to see anyone get cut. So we may need to reimburse the total reimbursement, but at least we're removing the incentive. I think there's a couple of areas that we need to accelerate. One are the pieces on interoperability. I think that's going to offer the whole system a level of efficiency that we don't have today. And it'll reduce a lot of the issues that we have in coordination of care. And I think it'll make for a better um, patient experience. The second area is value-based care. I think by now we know we've, we've been at this for many years. And I think the data shows us that when providers are at risk, you're getting better results. You're getting lower costs. You're getting better quality, better outcomes. And the incentives are in the right place. The other piece of that is that I think that going to value-based care isn't just uh, changing the financial incentives. It actually creates a paradigm where you're solving other issues, where let's say, let's take you know regulation and paperwork. We don't really need to drive somebody crazy with doing a bunch of prior authorization, utilization management. If the provider's at risk, then you know what, He'll, they'll figure it out. Or things like telehealth, you know, we're sitting here debating, should we do telehealth? Should we not do telehealth? If we do telehealth, do you have to have an in-person visit? Well, if the provider's at risk and they want to do telehealth, then so be it. They're incentivized to deliver outcomes. And whether it's telehealth or in-person, they will figure it out. So I think pushing value-based care at at a national level and being more aggressive about it, to me, that's something that, that needs to get done. What would like, yeah, I'm curious, you know, in your mind, what being more aggressive on value-based care would look like. I mean, I think one interesting thing, we had Brad Smith on the podcast a few weeks ago, and, you know, I know he's been critical of some of these CMMI models in the past and kind of curious, you know, your assessment of, of CMMI to date and some of these models and, and kind of what the, the more aggressive version would look like to you. Sure. So, you know, four years and got to, to work with both Patrick Conway, Adam Bowler and Brad Smith. So I had all of them and I probably gave them different tasks and different assignments. So 
when Patrick came on board, a lot of the model or Patrick was already on board when I came on board, but a lot of the models were already developed and they were in flight. And I didn't feel like it was appropriate to pull the rug out from under most of those models. And so we kept them going because I felt like I wanted to at least make sure they're working great. They're not working. We'll deal with it. So we pulled a couple of them that I thought were sort of egregious, but for the most part, we let them run the cycle. And so when Adam Bowler came on board, I said, all right, well, look, there's these, these other models are running. We don't really know what they're going to, what the results are going to look like, but we need to start launching our own models. And so my task to Adam was put together the Trump administration models. And so you saw models on primary care, kidney care, direct contracting, and he did a great job. And his focus was, we're going to launch a new set of models. And those models were really intended to build off the lessons learned previous issues that we've had in the past and kind of bring the best of breed together. So I think Adam did a great job. By the time Brad came, so he's kind of the last year of the administration. And by that time, people are coming in and I'm getting briefed on models. And I kind of hear the same thing. Well, this one's losing money. This one's not really achieving anything. And my head's spinning because there's 50 some models. And I'm like, okay, what's going on here? So when Brad came on board, two things that I wanted him to do. One was I wanted him to land the planes, right? Adam had created a bunch of models and we needed to get those actually operational. And the second piece was, I want you to go back and do this comprehensive analysis and figure out what's going on with these models. And Brad came back very quickly, looked at all the models and his analysis, which I think he published in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine, kind of said, look, most of these models are not working. By and large, they're losing money. They're not actually improving quality. And we have four or five that, that have done well. And that's, you know, it's a new thing, right? I mean, it's, these are models. So there were a lot of lessons learned across the board. One, I think, was providers need to take risks, right? They do better when they're taking risks. So I think easing folks into it, fine. You had to do that initially. But at some point, sort of like, if you want to do this, you're getting the advantage of having all these waivers so, you know, take on the risk. We felt like with a lot of the models, people are just sitting there. They're appreciating all of the waivers that they're getting. In some cases, CMS was paying for the investment, right? And you can call it different things, different ways, but we were actually paying people to bring on care coordinators or whatever. So those things, I think when CMS was making that additional investment, that also made a lot of the, the models not come out well. And then the, a lot of the areas of mandatory models. The reality is there was selection bias and people said, okay, well, here's the target. And guess what? My spending is, is already below that. I will sign up for this model and do absolutely nothing. And I'm going to make money. And so we didn't have other people reduce their costs. And so these models generally then came out as not saving any money for the federal government. So I think going forward, Value-based care, especially at the health system, somebody somebody needs to take total risk, right? Whether it's a primary care practice, whether it's a hospital system, to me, that's where we need to go. And we're moving to an era of how, how much more time do we need? That being said, there's a few areas where I feel like we need to develop this before we can go full on with value-based care. I think we need to make sure there's some protection for providers and people are taking risks that's incredibly scary. And so there's got to be some sort of floor, right? We don't want to see people completely lose their shirts. And then the second area is CMS, I think, needs to do a lot, a better job around benchmarking and the methodology. 
even in the direct contracting model, and even while I was there, there's just a lot of fluctuations. Today we're doing this, this is what the benchmark is, tomorrow we're doing that. You know, that type of ups and downs, I think from an industry perspective is just a big turnoff, you know, who wants to get involved with something and you think you're going in and then they drop the prices, they drop the benchmark. So we've got to figure out how to create a more stable environment. We've got to figure out how to make sure that the benchmarking is accurate. And that may take us a few years. But at that point, I think that some of the value-based care just start, it's, it's going to need to be a requirement. I think we're, we're getting to the point where these models shouldn't be optional anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's really interesting because you've lived both the policy and political realities of, of a lot of this. Like, you know, do you think uh, in, in that time period, it's, it's realistic that we'll get some more teeth behind some of these models? Yeah. So politically, you know, I'm saying that it's so nice to be on the outside and you don't have to think <laughs> about the political reality. You can just talk about what needs to happen. I think politically, obviously, that's going to be really hard. I don't see Congress doing anything big and sweeping. But if I had my magic wand, that's one of that's what I would do. That being said, it's likely very unrealistic. And I think there's a lot of questions about CMMI and the way that they have operated, you know, stopping models, reforming models, a lot of questions about them. And to the extent that they're doing more mandatory models, they're making more people mad and there's going to be, you know, more questions. So I think politically it's going to be difficult. That being said, when we talk about what's important to our healthcare system, what's important to making it sustainable over the long term, these are the kinds of things that are going to help. And we're getting you know, we're getting to that tipping point. Unfortunately, because so many seniors passed away from COVID, it's a terrible thing, but that gave the trust fund a couple more years. But this was, you know, projected to run out of money by 2026. Now you've got a couple more years. I mean, at some point, what are we going to do? Are we going to put more taxpayer money into it? And just, you know, that, that's certainly an option. But where's that money coming from? Are we going to continue to increase the deficits in this country, or are we going to start having a better healthcare system that delivers better results and it's more efficient and it's lower cost? And value-based care is about that, solving that problem. Oh, that's, 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 that's the big problem. It, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, one thing I'd be, I'd be remiss just switching gears for a second, you know, I'd love to just briefly touch on COVID. I mean, I imagine it must have been a wild experience being running CMS uh, in the early days of COVID. And, and obviously, I think you and your team made a series of, of pretty fast decisions to kind of make care more flexible. I guess my, my first question would just be, what was that like? And how did that all work in those first few weeks of COVID? Yeah. You know, the first few weeks were so incredibly chaotic. I mean, just like the rest of the country as an agency, you know, we went from being in person and then going all virtual. And we literally, our team had to, in a matter of days, you know, we're, we're going all virtual. And at the same time, not only are we expected to do our jobs, but now it's just very heightened. I can't say enough about the team at CMS. I mean, they really performed at a level that was extraordinary. The amount of rulemaking, the amount of waivers that were done in a matter of weeks, and you know, we continue to refine those over time. That type of work would take years for the agency to, to, to do. It was a round-the-clock effort. You know, I still remember getting out of the shower and the first conference call is starting and, you know, you're getting dressed. And it literally was like that. You need your first call 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. And your last meeting is like at 10 o'clock at night and you go to bed and it was like repeat every single day. There were no breaks. There were no weekends. Everything just kind of blurred together. But I'm, like I said, I'm proud of the agency. The other, the other part that I thought was sort of historic for CMS was that we really were listening to the industry. You know, my requirement for the team was get on, you know, get on the phone with 
the nursing homes, get on the phone with the hospitals. And we were constantly talking to them and they were saying, this is what we need. And we envisioned the MASH unit. You know, I don't know if a lot of us, I'm kind of dating myself, but I remember watching, you know, <laughs> MASH episodes as a kid. And it was like, okay, this is what it's going to look like. And how do we make sure that we can allow them to do this? So like you said, there was, you know, over a hundred and some waivers, hospital without walls, hospital at home, telehealth, all of these things were like, we're just stripping away regulations so that the industry can be free to just help people in this time of crisis. Totally. Obviously, there were a lot of interesting changes that were made, certainly telehealth being chief among them, but you know, some of the cross state lines and provider licensing and a whole host of other things. You know, I'm curious now, as you look back on a lot of those changes that were made, you know, how do you think about evaluating like which of those might make sense to keep long term, which might not? Well, I'll tell you what, every time I made one of those decisions and I made that decision fast, I mean, it was like, okay, waivers. <laughs> and we would go through the list and everybody was on the phone. You know, we had program integrity people. So these were quick decisions. And it was like, you know, speak now or forever hold your peace. But, you know, it was like everybody in the agency was there. Are we going to waive this? So there were a lot that gave me pause that I hesitated on. And what we decided to do, even at that point, was we were going to evaluate them right away. And so from, from the outset, the program integrity team was there. So they were like, okay, you guys are getting rid of this. We're going to look for this in terms of fraud and abuse. But I don't know what if the agency continued with this. So we're going to bring in a vendor to evaluate all of it. I think the evaluation is going to be critical and important to inform us about whether some of these regulations are really needed. And what are some of the, you know, I think there was one that we did, it's three day rule, you know, where you have to be in the hospital for a few days before you can go to the nursing home. And we waived that one. And that's something the industry had been pushing us for, for years and years and years. So everybody was like, great, you got rid of this one. You know what? It'll be interesting to see what the data look like, because by the time I left, we could see that some of the costs were increasing. And maybe that whole net held or it didn't, but I think it'll be important. Most regulations are in place to prevent fraud and abuse. They're around protecting the patient in some way, or there's a cost issue. And so uh, we ha now have a historic opportunity to really evaluate these regulations and, and the importance or, you know, whether some of them need to go away permanently. Yeah. I mean, you know, you kind of alluded to before, I'm curious, I feel like the, the, the probably the most prominent one that's affected, you know, people's day to day lives is, you know, probably on the telemed side. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious where you see that all headed. Yeah, you know, telehealth was something that we worked on from the outset, you know, and so by the time COVID came around, it wasn't new to the agency. We were always trying to push telehealth. And, you know, it's kind of that uh, old adage, you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And it was like, okay, here we go. We're really open the doors on this and let the genie out of the bottle. And I don't think there's any going back. Now, telehealth isn't going to replace in-person care, right? I mean, you're going to need to see the patient. You're going to need to see them with your own eyes, lay hands on them. But it does address some access issues. It's worked extraordinarily well in mental health. And so, you know, across the system, some people will like it, some people won't. There'll be a place for it, but it's a tool in the toolbox. And when we're struggling with providers and access and rural health and shortages, I think it's an incredible tool that we should try to leverage as much as possible. I'm, I'm curious, I mean, obviously, you, like you said, it was such a set of, of rapid decisions, you know, early on, like, what was one of the hardest to make? I imagine there's so many quick yeah. you know, trade-offs and, and decisions you had to make. I think the hardest one for me was around the nursing homes and some of the visitation policies. I mean, it just kind of killed me. I remember my, literally my next door neighbor, when I go get the mail, 
So her house is right there. And I see her a lot when I'm getting the mail or the newspaper. And her mother's in a nursing home. And she would always go visit her mom. You know, what are you doing, Jen? I went to visit my mom. And to kind of say we can't have visitation, I think that was really tough. And it was something that I struggled with from day one till the end. And, you know, in between, we were trying to ease up the regulations and trying to figure out how it could work. But I think the people in the nursing home really suffered by not being able to have some of that interaction and, and not just with their family and loved ones outside, but even inside the nursing homes, you know, there were a lot of restrictions. They weren't able to do a lot of those group activities. So that's one that I think was particularly hard. Yeah. You know, I guess I'd be curious, obviously, I feel like we could chat for a while, but I'm sure you have many, uh, many things to go do. I guess just what's, what's next for you? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I'm having a, I'm having a blast at this phase. You know, I think when I was at CMS, I was very focused on doing the task at hand. When you're a regulator, I think it's important to have a little bit of distance from the industry so you can be clear headed about making decisions. And so now it's been a great opportunity to sort of be on the other side of it with looking at the inner workings of all these different companies. I'm excited that I've been able to work with different types of companies. You know, WellSky's focused on post-acute and interoperability and electronic medical records. Lumeris is a Medicare Advantage plan. They're working with health systems around value-based care. There's Monogram that's doing kidney care, Life Stance, it's mental health. So it's kind of all these different types of providers. And it's, it's also helpful to sort of see the challenges that they face and where government's helpful, where government just, where, you know, kind of gets in the way. So, you know, I continue to evaluate options. I think this is still a transition time for me, but I've been consulting with a lot of companies and I'm having a, having a great time just learning and seeing different stages from startups to fortune 500 companies. I'm kind of doing the whole gamut of it and it's been exciting. And I'm excited that there are so many innovators and companies out there that are really trying to move the ball forward and maybe in a better, faster way than, than government ever has and ever will be. That makes sense. I mean, do you think you might return to the policy world at some point? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's great being a spectator. It's nice to sit yeah. in the peanut gallery and, and say whatever you want to say. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. We'll see. Well, Seema, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk through all this. My, uh, my know, definitely pleasure. Definitely a wide-ranging discussion, and I think our, our listeners will really enjoy it. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks, Jacob. I'm Jacob Efron, and that was Vital Signs. A huge thanks again to Seema. Definitely stay tuned next week. We're having Sachin Jane join the podcast. Sachin's the current CEO of Scan Health Plan, former CEO over at Caremore, helped start CMMI, was in a leadership role at Merck. Just a really interesting leader in health tech with some really interesting opinions on where the space is headed. We'll also be joined by our first co-host. Keeping us surprised, but should be a lot of fun. So we'll look forward to tuning in with you then. Thank you.